Good morning, Zoe family. I, I hope you enjoy worship as much as I did. It is precious to be in the presence of the Lord. And I tell you that God is everywhere. So we're worshiping here, you're worshiping at home or wherever you're watching. And it, it's, a, it's a joy to partake of the goodness of God, uh, worshiping Him, celebrating Him. And I'm looking forward to continuing that celebration as we look closely at the gift that Jesus is to us. Amen. So we're in part five of Christmas in January. Gift unwrapping secrets from a prison inmate. And for those of you who've been watching, we've really been unpacking the letter that Paul wrote to Ephesians. And it speaks of the ways in which we should, all the multiple ways we should find joy in Jesus. That as we talked about, he is often a gift left unwrapped, not just under the Christmas tree, but the Bible says that God's mercies are new every morning. So if we're not waking up to find something new, we're not getting all that Jesus has to offer us. So last week, we continued our series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we titled it Christmas in January because the letter highlights the gift that Jesus is in January in every day of the year. A true Christian knows that Christmas is actually every day, and we've talked about this more than, on more than one occasion, but it's really the case. And I've, uh, uh, I've, I've emphasized this in my latest Instagram post. I'm going to post some new things this week. And uh, really the, the, the word that God gave me after our fast was steadfast, and that is to stay in the spiritual intensity that we had from this 21 days of fasting because there's something new every day. There's something new every day from spending time with Jesus. And if we're not there, we miss it. He's offering peace to us, direction, clarity. There's things we're wrestling with in our minds. And Jesus has the answer, and he'll give it to us if we meet him in that secret place. I don't know what your secret place is, whether it's a closet. Some people have a literal closet. Perhaps it is a prayer walk you do. For me, it's up, there's an upstairs room I go into, which is my primary place, and I go up there and I spend time with the Lord. Do you have a designated place to receive the gift that Jesus has for you? So to a Christian, Christmas is every day. We celebrate him every day. The subtitle of our, of our series is Gift Unwrapping Secrets from a Prison Inmate because Paul is in prison while he writes the letter. In one of the most undesirable places imaginable, Paul helps us unwrap the supernatural gift we have in Christ. However, what is clear early in the letter is that the wrapping paper is not around the gift, but around our eyes. That is so important. And that's the prayer we should be praying. Lord, give me eyes to see. Give me eyes to see. We're, we're being bombarded daily, in fact, beyond daily, moment to moment with things for our eyes to see. Things that we see on our phones or our television sets or whatever devices we're using to see things, we're constantly being bombarded. And there are so many things trying to get our attention that companies and, and organizations compete with the opportunity to find real estate in our minds. And they're putting things in front of our eyes. Well, God wants to put something in front of our eyes, and that is the revelation of who Jesus is, which has application for every aspect of our lives. Accessing the gift that Jesus is requires that our spiritual eyes be open. And Paul 
in its opening chapter, lists so many things that are available to us as our spiritual eyes are open. I'll just list them. We've talked about them. In Ephesians 1, chapter 3 through 10, we said we are blessed. We are chosen. We are predestined. We are adopted. We are sons. We are redeemed. We are forgiven. We are wealthy. We are wise. We are heirs. We are sealed. We're going to finish up this final chapter and actually get through chapter 2 so we can stay on schedule here with our going through Ephesians. We're going to get through it over the course of this month, and then February, we're going to finish the series on Ephesians. So we're going to pick up at the last section of Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians 1, 12 through 14, and I'm just going to read I'm just going to read this passage here. In Ephesians 1, 12, uh, 1, 12 through 14, it says this, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So let me just stop there. That is referring to the Jewish community. The Jewish community was the community that first came to know who Jehovah was, right? And by the way, this Ephesian church is a multiracial church, and there are two kind of primary groups. You have the Jews and you have the Gentiles, and Ephesus was a kind of multi-ethnic place anyway, but those are really two different cultures, the Gentile culture and the Jewish culture. So in 17, it's talking about the Jewish community, and then in verse 13, it says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, this is referring to the Gentiles. So we have the Jews and we have the Gentiles, right? But regardless of whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, we're, we're all saved and chosen and predestined in Jesus. And then it says this, that whether Jew or Gentile, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So let me break down those two words, seal and guarantee. So the seal really is almost like, think about, an old school letter with uh, the, the, the kind of a wax uh, that, uh, in fact, I write many letters of recommendation for students. I'm a professor, and uh, what I do sometimes, if it's a physical letter, what I'll do is I'll sign my name on the back of the letter where the letter opens so they know that it's authenticated by me. I'll sign my name. So if, if somehow, uh, if the letter somehow is it, on the back of it, my signature looks jagged, that suggests that someone opened the letter, and it may not have been authentic. But if my signature is on the back of it where it's sealed, it says, no, this is a letter that I wrote. And similarly, when it's talking about the seal, it's almost, think about a wax seal with the image or the imprint of the sender on the letter. And that's what God has done with us. He sealed us with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's seal. If you recall, when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, what happened? The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, and God essentially said, that's my boy. That's my boy. He said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. But the sentiment is, that's my boy, right? Or in, in, in anyone else's cases, that's my boy or that's my girl. When God gives us the Holy Spirit, he's saying, that's my child. That's my child, right? I just want y'all to know this is my child. You ever done that as a parent? You've seen people treating your kids any kind of way, and you say, hey, that's my child. And that's what God is saying to us when he gives us the Holy Spirit. He's given us his seal. It also says that the, that the Holy Spirit is our guarantee. That word literally means down payment. And I've talked about this in past sermons. But what that means is that we talked about redemption. God has redeemed us. But there's aspects of our redemption that haven't happened yet. Namely, we still have these bodies. We still have these bodies. 
We have bodies that die and, 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 and go older and, 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 and we age and, and all those other kind of things. And also our bodies are subject to the desires of the flesh. The other thing that the Holy Spirit is a down payment on is that this earth is not fully redeemed. There's aspects of it, certainly the environment, but many other kinds of things that aren't fully redeemed. And so God said, in the meantime, I'm giving you the Holy Ghost. Now, I won't go over this passage, but I suggest you read it. Romans 8, 19 through 23, it speaks of this concept of God eventually redeeming our bodies and redeeming the earth. It speaks about the fact that creation itself longs for its full redemption and that we cry and we groan longing for the redemption of our bodies that will happen in the new heaven and the new earth. But in the meantime, we've got the Holy Ghost. We've got the Holy Ghost. Let's continue here. Our new bodies and our new bodies and new earth are on their way, but in the meantime, we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes it possible for us to have foretaste of the world to come. Let's continue. We're going to finish up this chapter 1 and get into chapter 2 here. Chapter 1, Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. I'm going to read this and then comment briefly on it. It says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So let me break down what is happening in this passage. There's two primary things that are interesting to me here. One is prayer and the other is authority. This last part speaks of prayer and then it also speaks of authority, both of which are incredibly significant. So first, the power of prayer. So first of all, notice that Paul said, I don't cease, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That suggests that our, our prayer needs are constant. Our prayer needs are constant. Again, I'm going to repeat a word I was saying in the Instagram, and what I'm saying today is that we must be steadfast, immovable, continuing with the spiritual intensity that we had committed to in the fast because our need to seek God is constant. The, the fast is just a jump starter. It's to, it's, it's to wake us up out of our slumber, being lulled to sleep by the habits and things we're doing that don't consider God's perspective on them. Prayer moves us from information to revelation. And let me tell you, I'm having such a good time with, main, with, with seeking God, and, and God just explaining things to me, God solving problems for me, God giving me ideas and suggestions and solutions and all these kind of things simply because I'm there with him. I'm there with him. So he shares that information with me. We talked briefly last week about how Abraham is called the friend of God. And God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said, well, wait a minute. How can I not tell my friend Abraham about what I'm about to do? because of their relationship, because they had a regular meeting time and a regular meeting space. We need more than Google. 
We need revelation from God. What else did the letter tell us, what, what I just read here? Because our natural thinking opposes God, we need the Holy Spirit to shape our thoughts. Your natural mind and your, your natural thoughts won't want to do the things that God wants to do. I'll, just prayer itself. Prayer, and I've said it before, does not appeal to the flesh. I tell you, I know I'm committed to it, but hey, hey five o'clock in the morning, whoo! I don't necessarily feel I'll get up, especially if I was up the night before, putting my kids to sleep or whatever we had to do without our day. And then it's, oh, five, whew, five o'clock, I think I want to stay in. But you know what? I want that time with the Lord. And I tell you, as you grow older and you have your responsibilities to people and things expand, you have to be intentional to find time with God. It just doesn't just show up. You got to make the time happen. You got to make the time happen. Hey, listen, I don't know what your thing is, what your, what, your, what, your, what, your, what your passion is or whatever, but whatever it is, let's just say it's basketball. If LeBron James said he would mentor you every week, every day, and you wanted to make it to the NBA, I'll personally mentor you, but I, you got to meet me at 5 a.m. every day. There's people who they would say, hey, <laughs> I'm going to bed at 8 at night. I'm going to bed early just so I can meet with LeBron. <laughs> Maybe you're a business owner and the, the, the wealthiest person in the world said, I'm going to mentor you, but you got to meet me at five in the morning. What you wouldn't do to make that meeting every day. Whatever it is, whatever it is the guru or the expert is that you admire or respect, you would be there. But guess what? God is the smartest person you know. And he lives in you. God is your best consultant. He's your smartest consultant, and he's your best fundraiser. Why aren't you asking him questions? The closer we draw to God in prayer, the more he reveals to us. Paul prays that our spiritual eyes be open to see what? Who God really is and who we really are in him. How wealthy God is and how wealthy we are in him. And how powerful God is and how powerful we are in him. When I speak of wealth, I'm talking about the riches of his grace and his mercy and the unsearchable riches of Christ that the Ephesians letter speaks of. The other aspect of this last part of chapter 1 is the power of authority. And it tells us that Jesus is seated above all other authorities. And God not only has authority over the church, but over authority itself. God not only has authority over the church, but over authority itself. We're going to get more into this as we get into the second half of Ephesians. But this is really important because, you see, God's authority over the church is overt. That is, we openly acknowledge he's king, he's Lord, but the, but the world doesn't acknowledge that. So he has authority over the world, but his authority over the world is covert, Sort of like the mafia, as I was saying about the, 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 we were using the example of the mafia and how a mafia or a gang can run a whole town, a whole block. But you don't see that openly, you just see a supermarket. You just see the mayor and the police officers, but you don't know that they're all paid off by the mafia. And they actually run the town. But the mafia doesn't want to let you, doesn't want to do that openly because if they did it openly, you could convict them and put them in jail. You see, you can't, how can I say, because of, the, because of we are a country that is based on law and order, you can't just put somebody in jail because you just think they're guilty. 
You got to have enough evidence. You got to go through the due process of law. And so going back to the American Gangster movie, I told you about, uh, about the movie that, 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 that Denzel Washington played the primary character, the Lucas character, right? And he, he, his gang ran, ran the block. And the police knew he was doing all this crazy stuff, but they couldn't convict him. They had to wait to build enough evidence. And they had to set up a sting operation in order to convict him and make it stick. And that's what God's doing. He's waiting for the iniquity of the world to be fulfilled. But in the meantime, he's running a sting operation. He runs it, but he's letting the world do what they do. There's a parable in the Bible. Jesus said, I got wheat and tares, and the tares and the wheat look just alike. And the enemy plants the tares with the wheat, and then it says that God, that, that, that the servants came out and said, Master, somebody put tares with the wheat. Should we pick out the tares? He said, no, let them grow. In due time, I'm going to take up the tares and the wheat, and then the tares I'm going to put into the furnace to burn. But I'm, I, let me run my sting operation. I know what they're doing. The Scripture tells us don't be envious of the wicked. Don't be envious of evil people who prosper in their ways. God knows. He's over all of it, but he has a covert operation. You see, in the age to come, God's authority over all things will be obvious to everyone. But God runs a covert operation because he's giving people the opportunity to choose him willingly and by faith. Willingly and by faith. He's testing to see who will choose him without seeing. In fact, Jesus explains this he explains this to Thomas because Thomas said, I, don't, I mean, he was one of Jesus' disciples, but Thomas didn't believe. He said, well, I see you, Jesus, but I don't know if you really rose from the dead. Let me, where you, where, 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 give me proof. And finally, Jesus showed him the nail prints and all that kind of stuff. And then he says to Thomas, John 20, verse 29, he says this, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. Listen, we're not physically seeing the kingdom of God reign in all of its glory the way it will one day when Jesus physically is back here on the earth, but we believe anyway. We know God's in control. That's, we're not, that's why we're not rocked. We're not rocked. Now, we engage with the realities of the earth because, we're number one, we're human. We have real emotions. But number two, we have compassion on people who don't know. The Lord invites us to have compassion on people who don't know that Jesus is king. And in the meantime, we care for them and support them and help them and help them to understand. Ultimately, we want to bring them to Jesus so that they have the peace that we have. But we, in the, at the end of the day, we have peace because we know this is all temporary. Whatever it looks like the devil is winning, it's all temporary. It's all temporary. Like I said last week, when, when the top gangster sees you trying to do things, he just laughs. It's all, it says the same thing in Psalms 2. If you read Psalms 2, the father says, he's just laughing. <laughs> My man. My man. That's, what, that's all God said. He's laughing. They actually think they're running things. The Illuminati or whoever it is you think is really running the world, God's like, they actually think they're running things but I'm just setting them up. It's a sting operation. And as I told you, the Bible says 
at some day, it's going to come to a point where there's going to be a global force that's going to attack Israel. And God said, okay, that's all I needed. (laughs) See, once they cross that line, I have to intervene. Once they, you know, there's a, the scripture calls Israel his firstborn, right? And God's like, the minute you touch my child, I got to step in. And God's going to take them out. They're going to have the battle of Armageddon, and it's all all going to happen. But in the meantime, God is allowing the world to think it's ahead. Now, let's get into Ephesians 2, all right? We're going to read this from top to bottom, and then we're going to discuss it. And if you don't mind, we'll do a little liturgy today. So if you can stand at the reading of the word of God, and if you're at home, wherever you are, if you can stand, we're going to read Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read it out loud here. And it says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." So that in the ages, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I know that is a mouthful, but that is precisely how you would have heard, how you would have experienced that letter when Paul wrote it. That's how they used to do it. He would write the letter, and then they would read the letter to the entire church, and that's how they got Ephesians. They didn't have a Bible. They didn't have an app, right? Back in the book of Nehemiah and in various places in the Old Testament, sometimes they would go and they would just read the law, and the whole community would just stand up and just listen for a long time right? There is a blessing in the reading of the Word of God, but we're going to break it down 
this morning. So starting off with the first few verses of Ephesians 2, it says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. I'm going to start there. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Let's talk about that, being dead in our trespasses and sins. So here's the thing when God talks about death. It's not the way that we think about death. See, physical death happens when the human spirit separates from the body. And we know this intuitively because when you go to a funeral and you see a body, you intuitively know that your loved one is not there. Like that's just a corpse. That's, a, that's just flesh and bones and, and embalming fluid. That's not my, my loved one's not there. They're, they're, they're gone somewhere, but they're not here, right? So physical death is when your, your human spirit leaves your body. But here God is not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. Spiritual death happens when the Holy Spirit separates from the body. That's spiritual death. When the Holy Spirit leaves. There are many people walking around. They're biologically alive, but spiritually dead. No Holy Ghost. They're just making decisions and making choices without the influence of the Holy Spirit. And God calls that dead. He looks at you the same way you look at that corpse at the funeral. That's your status. Now, it's interesting. So what is happening? If we're, if we're biologically alive and spiritually dead, what's going on? Well, check it out. When you're not following the spirit, you're following something. What are you following? Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Let's break that down. So in other words, separation from God or separation from the Holy Spirit is not neutrality. Leaving God does not turn you into a blank slate like, okay, I'm free. I can do whatever I want to do. No, you're still a slave, according to Scripture. See, when you separate from God, you leave one influence and become subject to three other ones. What are they? Ephesians told us, the world, the devil, the flesh. The world, the devil, the flesh. You see, Jesus told us, he said, you can't serve two masters because you're going to love one and hate the other. But you know what that implies? You're going to have a master. It's just a matter of which one. Is it going to be God or is it going to be the trifecta, the world, the devil, the flesh? Let's talk about each one. First of all, the world, following the course of this world. The word course is the word aeon. It, it, it means literally age, but don't think, when you think of it, think of it more like the way we think about decades. Like we name decades, like the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, right? And when we name decades, it's less about the time period and more about what was happening in the time period. So the 50s has a certain style. People thought a certain way. 60s have a certain style. People thought a certain way, et cetera, right? So when we talk about the course of this world, the course of this world is a system of beliefs, practices, institutions, and values that places creation at the center of reality. 
In other words, the world is driven by what it can see physically, but what it can feel physically. It's driven by that. It puts creation at the center of reality. Well, you might say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, let's continue here, right? The problem with this is that creation is temporary and does not represent things as they really are. It passes away. I mean, 2020 was proof. Like, our way of living is probably forever changed. The way we used to do is gone. Why? It's created. They change. It's temporary. Moving on. I mean, our world, we, we will mark that year as the year when things change permanently towards some other direction. And, 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 and it's deceptive because when we fall in love with the world, we place good and evil in the wrong categories. John talks about this. 1 John 2, 15 through 17, it says this. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Why? Because the love of the Father is based upon the Creator. The love of the Father puts the Creator at the center of reality. The love of the world puts creation at the center of reality. You can't love both at the same time. Let's continue, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. In verse 17, as I just said, the world is passing away along with its desires. We see this. The world is passing away. We have even questioned the stability of America in the last year. It's very constitution. We've questioned it because why? It too is temporary. It too is a created thing. Think about it. Even your desire for the world will pass away. Even your desire for the world will pass away. There's one, one day you're going to see God face to face and you're going to say, why didn't I live for him? This stuff I was worried about didn't even matter. Didn't even matter. Now, recently, I've changed how I've dressed on Sundays, in part to, in large part, to appeal to a more contemporary audience. But guess what? I'm not going to stand before God. He ain't going to be asking me what I put on, if my clothes matched, where I bought my clothes, who designed it. That stuff doesn't matter. We got to live for God. Don't care about what you're wearing. That's for people. We use that to get people interested. But that, that's, not, that's not the thing. You don't care how many likes you have or how many followers you had. That stuff is going to pass away. The person who's popular now is not going to be popular tomorrow. It passes away. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's what 1 John tells us. So, 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 I'm going to move on to the devil. I had some other things I'm going to say about the world. I'm going to move on to the devil. Okay? We got to cover this today. So, we talk about the world and then the devil. The devil. The scripture says, following the prince of the power of the air. Here's the thing. Jesus is above authority itself. But if we're not in Christ, see, outside of Christ, the devil is above our pay grade. You can't handle him. You can't handle him without Jesus. He's a real, but he's not made up. Somebody think there was a poet, 
medieval poet called uh, Dante. He wrote, you know, he, he wrote these long epic poems about hell and about heaven and about purgatory. And one of the famous ones is Dante's Inferno. There's some people who think we made up the devil and we base it upon his poem. That's not true. He's a real person. He's a real person. And here's the thing. When we separate from God, we make ourselves vulnerable to an enemy who dedicates his existence to watching and exploiting our weaknesses. He studies us. He watches the film. He got all day. He got all day watching us, exploiting us. He knows what buttons to press. He knows how to make us think this is going to work, but it's not. He knows how to get us on what I call highway scenes right. Highway scenes right. You know about highway scenes, right? It talks about it in Proverbs. It says there's a way that seems right to a man, but the way thereof is death. Highway seems right. 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That lion is hungry, and he's waiting to see a little lamb, well, the little lamb or a deer, whatever the lion is, is, whatever context the lion is in, is looking for prey, the weak ones, the ones who don't know that the lion is coming, checking you out. He's checking you out. Now, here's the thing. He's so crafty because he, he has his own something, right? Because it, the next part of it, it says, the devil is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What does that mean? Well, see, when you are disobedient, you are walking in the spirit of the devil. When you are disobedient, you are walking in the spirit of the devil. You are under his mastery. He has bewitched you. Disobedience makes us feel like we are asserting our independence, right? I showed them. I showed them. I told they're not going to control me. They're not going to take it. This is who I am. This is my truth. This is what I'm going to do. Yeah, you keep saying that. Because in reality, disobedience only expresses how much we are under the devil's control. That's all it does. You are under his thumb, and he knows how to press your buttons. He'll just get the other person to say something or do something he knows will get under your skin and take you out of the spirit. That's his goal. He wants to take you out of the spirit into the flesh. Get out of the spirit, get into the flesh. He has succeeded when he does that. And since we're on the flesh, let's talk about the flesh. The flesh, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, the flesh. You see, the flesh is not the same as the body. That's not the same thing. Really what the flesh is, the flesh is shorthand for this, creation without creator. Creation without creator. The flesh is a simple way of referring to existence without the spirit. Let me explain. Not too long ago, uh, maybe a few months ago, there was a dead possum in my yard. I don't know how it got there. It was just sitting there. And by the time I saw it, it was the maggots and things were eating it, and it was just, ugh, flesh. Gross. And I said, okay, I called Animal Patrol to come pick it up. They was taking their time. But I wasn't going to handle it. <laughs> I'm not picking it up. But we had a neighbor. She was jogging, and she, she came by. She said, hey, y'all know you have a dead possum in the yard? He said, we don't. We called the animal patrol. She said, oh, okay, well, I'm from the south. We just, 
we just take that sucker and put it in the trash. I said, I'm from L.A. <laughs> so we're waiting for them to get there. They eventually got there. But what was that possum? Flesh. No spirit. It's just raw, ugly, maggot, stinking. That's flesh. And that's us without the spirit. That's us when we act ugly and disobedient and we don't walk on the fruit of the spirit. We're just like that dead possum, ugly, stinky maggots. So by definition, the flesh is spiritual death. It is possible to be biologically alive yet spiritually dead. When you are spiritually dead, you can still talk, act, think, and desire but the passions of the flesh are expressed through the body and the mind. So your flesh, that ugly, stinky flesh, has desires. And it's the desires of the body and the desires of the mind. And this is a problem. Why? Because the passions of our body and mind are not reliable sources of identity, which is why you can't just do and identify with the things you want to do. Because it's coming from a source that's compromised. And in this day and age, you got people who saying, my truth, but they're using their body and their mind that has not been renewed as a source of information. And it's not reliable. It's temporal. And it's the devil orchestrates that. He leverages our commitment to the flesh to make us just like Pinocchio. He got, he got the whole puppet thing going. He leverages the flesh to get us to do what we want to do. God leverages the spirit for us to do what he wants us to do. This is why, and we'll read it later in Ephesians chapter 5, God, Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is, this is why what it says in the passage, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, Without God's grace, we are as guilty as the worst criminal because God sees us all like that dead possum. Until we come to Christ, it doesn't matter what you've done, how many years you've been in church and what seminary you graduated from and how holy your grandmother was. Look, if you don't have Jesus, you are dead possum. Another analogy is you like a chicken with their head cut off. You ever, it's not a, you know, if you haven't been raised up in an agrarian culture, that may seem, may, may seem a little weird. You haven't grown up in a farm, but when you cut off a chicken's head, that sucker's still moving. That sucker's still moving. All the nerves and things are just still going. And, 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 and when we walk according to our flesh, and when we look to our flesh for guidance, it's like going to that dead chicken and say, hey, chicken, where should I go? And the chicken's just... And you're just following the chicken. And that chicken don't have direction. It's just doing what it feels. It's just raw, uh, it's just raw nerves and body just moving, just moving. And that's people today. They're just trying stuff, asking a dead chicken. With no, a chicken that's disconnected from, 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 from truth and rationality and peace. We got to see God. We're almost done here, but I got to get to this part, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. It says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved. I love this. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Rich in mercy. Again, we talked about in Ephesus, when he talk, whenever he's talking about riches in, in the letter of Ephesus, he's making references to the fact uh, there's a bank of Ephesus that was really a temple for a goddess, Diana, but it was also a bank. And it was a house of worship for the goddess Diana, and her image was on their money, right? And so God is saying, Diana's rich, but I'm richer. I'm rich in mercy, and you need a lot of mercy to come to be, for me to raise you from that state of death. I'm rich in mercy. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. In other words, God took a stinky corpse and turned it into an object of love. He took, imagine going to that, to that, that, that possum with all the maggots in it. Like instead of having it thrown away, I picked it up and hugged it and loved it and said, you're mine. You're precious. I've chosen you. You are my beloved. Imagine doing that to a dead possum. That's what God did to us. Because that's what we were without Jesus. He grabbed us. He said, hey, with all those maggots, all the stench, he said, you're mine. I love you. Ephesians 2, 6, it says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He says, sit next to me. I rule heaven and earth. You're going to sit right next to me. You're part of the royal family. And that's what God has called you to. I don't know who you are because I can't see you. But I already know that God has destined you to be with him. And I don't know what the status of your life is, what, what you're looking for, what you, what you need in your life, and whether it's good or bad. But God who is rich in mercy is saying, you, you are my beloved. I love you. I've chosen you. There's, you haven't done anything bad enough for me to not love you. But you might say, but, but, I, but look at what I've done. But God says, I got, I got, I'm rich in mercy, though. You ever see those gangsters, right? And, and they, just, they just pull out a water cast, and, and you say, you know, they go to a restaurant or something. They're going to buy something. They got, they got a water cast this thick. And like, what you need? They scoff at the idea of you worrying about money. Well, that's what God has in grace. So he looks at your situation, pulls out his wad of grace and mercy and says, what you need? What? What? God is not phased by your history. God just loves you. And I want to give you an opportunity if, a few things. One, if you are sitting there and you've never made a commitment to Jesus personally. And or perhaps you have been raised up in a Christian church and you've you know, gone through the various traditions and things, and you know what church is, but you have not made a personal commitment to Jesus. And maybe you might say you're a Christian nominally because you've done those things, but you know in your heart you don't have a personal relationship with God. Or thirdly, maybe, you know, you've just walked away from God. You've, you've known him, but you're just, you're, 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 you're not committing to him with the same level of intensity you if you're in one or more of those categories, I want to pray with you because God loves you. And he, he, listen, if there was ever a time to draw close to God, it was, it's now. 
We saw 2020. We have no idea what 2021 is going to be. That, that, that should be a wake-up call. We have no idea. And so this is the time to draw to God so you can, you can, you can spend time with him and he can give you peace. But if, you, if, you, if you're listening to what I'm saying and you, you know you need to draw close to Jesus, will you pray with me and repeat after me? Dear God, I come to you now and I submit myself to Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. Thank you, God, for saving me. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, that he shed his blood, and that he was raised from the dead. And that when he was raised from the dead, my sins stayed in the grave. And I am now able to live a holy life. Thank you, God, for my salvation and my righteousness. Fill me with your spirit that I may live a righteous life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you said that prayer for the first time or for the first time and meant it, or you said it again because you hadn't been close to him, any of those cases, what I want you to do is I want you to text Zoe Saved to the number on your screen. And this is important because, hey, we want to keep in touch with you. And it's, hey, it's hard to be a Christian by yourself. We're not designed to be Christians by ourselves. We not only want to give you some resources, but we want to connect you with other people who are right where you are, some of whom have also been walking this journey, and understand where it is to be you. And so uh, with that, uh, we want to connect with you and, and, and just talk with you about that. To everyone else, I want to thank you for joining us this Sunday. This is the day that the Lord has made. I've got some more things to share with you on Instagram this week, so stay tuned on that. And God is so good. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. <laughs>